and in the sanctuary is the final foundations class lesson on church government and church discipline. So today is not continuing that tactics study. That'll continue next week. Uh, But um, because I am preaching on the Gospel of Mark, the last 11 verses this Sunday, uh, Rick Hartney was, was gracious to let me teach on why I'm going to preach that on this day. And I'm going to read part of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and then the verses that I'll be preaching on later on. I'm going to read that as well. And I'm going to try to keep this uh, um, not technical, okay? Try to keep it useful. But at the same time, this is a, there's a very technical debate about this. And I'm not going to get into all the Greek words and anything like that. But it's, um, this is a, a, a big controversy among text critic scholars, people who examine the various manuscript evidence. And it can get really confusing fast. So hopefully this lesson will be useful to us all. And you will have some, if you don't agree, at least some confidence that uh, there's good reason for what I'm going to do, you know, in an hour. But before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for this time we have this morning. We thank you for your unrelenting goodness. Thank you for your kindness, your patience towards us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that we, we would find this word to be useful and that we would be encouraged by your um, preservation of your word for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so I'm going to read Mark 1, 9 through, 4, 9 through 15, and then I'll read Mark 16, 9 through 20. Last night in family worship, we read all of Mark 1, because it's been a while since we've been in Mark 1 as a congregation, and since I'm concluding it today, I thought for family worship, that'd be a good idea just to see where, where it all began. So verse 9 through 4, 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now let's look at Mark 16, 9 through 20. Let's just bypass those brackets for now. Pretend they're not even there, assuming your Bible has brackets. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. 
But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay, just to be clear here, I'm not teaching the content of these verses right now. I'll be preaching the content in a little bit. Now, some people might say that there is no point in this lesson. But they would have different reasons for dis, you know, disagreeing. Some would say that, uh, of course, Pastor Mock, you would, you would preach these verses. These verses have been preached for centuries. In fact, if I have my King James Version out, I don't see any brackets at all. So you're creating a problem that, you know, I didn't know was a problem, okay? And another view would say, there shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about preaching on, on these verses. Of course you wouldn't be preaching on these verses. After all, don't you see the brackets there? Don't you see the modern translations, the NIV, the ESV, and others that say certain things about these verses that have questioned the legitimacy of preaching these verses, why would you even think about it? In fact, I was even in that second category for many years. And I made it, um, I don't know, a distinctive of mine when I was teaching high schoolers. And say, of course I wouldn't preach. I would never preach Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's not in your earliest manuscripts. And I would say the same thing of John 7, 53 through 8, 11, that account of the woman caught in adultery. Of course I wouldn't preach on that. I would, I would explain the textual history and all this, but I would say it's not Scripture. That's where, I, that's where I was for a while. Now, I'm not going to bind anyone's conscience here, and there are certainly ministers who choose not to preach this text. And... Whether you do or whether you don't puts you on either side of, a, of the road here as far as um, scriptural authority. You know, the Bible says do not add and it says do not take away. So um, if people in, the good, in their conscience think that we cannot preach this and say, well, then you're, you're adding scripture. And of course, we would, wanna, we would not ever want to add to scripture. On the, same, on the other hand, we need to be careful because are we taking away the scripture? I would say, no, this is not scripture when it actually is. So whether you do teach, preach it, 
or you don't, has some significant consequences because both sides agree that we should only teach and preach Scripture, right? So we have the presence of brackets. You see, if you have a modern translation, you see double brackets. And various translations have uh, different uh, explanations for what's going on. The ESV has... Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Raise your hand if that's what yours says, if you have an ESV. Okay. And that's true. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. It is true, but it's not the full picture. That's all I'll be talking about in just a little bit. The New American Standard Bible has... Later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. Later manuscripts add, which assumes then that earlier manuscripts do not have. So when you get a little later in the manuscripts, you're adding. And that is true. Later manuscripts do add or do have these verses. The NIV uh, has... The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. So here, okay, the earliest manuscripts don't have it, and then some other ancient manuscripts or ancient witnesses do not have it. So it's, it's not represented by everything that is ancient. You don't have it in several places. True. The Christian Standard Bible which is getting a lot of popularity these days, and it's a, it's a good translation, it says some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. Some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. And that's true. Some of them do conclude with verse 8. The Net Bible, which tries to give in English uh, just... A good translation, but then also a lot of footnotes for someone who isn't a text critic scholar, give him a sense of what's going on. It says, the Gospel of Mark ends at this point in some witnesses, including two of the most respected manuscripts, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So now there is this, this weight when we look at some of the earliest manuscripts and the, the ones that are, by modern scholarship, most respected, they don't have these verses. It ends at verse 8. So, we, the, then the point is, we should not be uh, considering this as Scripture. And, of course, what's the basis that these manuscripts are respected? Well, age. That is the primary criterion. It's not the only, but it's the primary criterion on which um, manuscript scholars are basing this assessment. Well, the earliest is the best. And can you see why someone would say that? The, the earliest manuscript that we have, the earliest copy of the, of the text is the best. Why might somebody argue that way? Closest to the original 
Okay, so it is thought that because it is the earliest, it is, clo- it is closest in time. And so if it's closest in time, that means there's, there's fewer opportunities for error to creep in. You guys know the telephone game. And uh, you know that as history uh, proceeds, we become less and less certain of what has happened all the way back then, all those hundreds of years ago. So we know how our own uh, messaging can be distorted, especially over a period of time. So that's the, uh, that's the idea. The earliest is the best because it has, it has given the least amount of time for error, for corruption. Now it must be noted that the challenge of these verses is a modern novelty. Beginning in 1806, with the new edition of the New Testament by a scholar named Griesbach, which is an unfortunate last name. His claim is that before the second century, the present ending, verses 9 through 20, was added by an unknown writer, and then a whole family of manuscripts carried on this error. So, what is being said here Well, what's being acknowledged first is that from the time that the Gospel of Mark was written down until the 1800s, nobody really challenged the legitimacy of these verses. Now, there are uh, there are some ancient witnesses that mention that that these verses are not in uh, the Gospel of Mark, like Eusebius makes mention of it. But the church, as a whole, did not reject these verses. It wasn't until the text critics, scholars of the 19th century, um, being influenced perhaps by the Enlightenment, it wasn't until that time that these verses then became challenged. Thus began a debate over the authenticity of these verses with modern scholarship for the most part, rejecting these verses. So if you picked up any commentary today, um, pretty much most would say this is not original. And they say the same thing about John 7.53 to 8.11. Okay, now what are they basing this argument on? Well, there are reasons to relegate these verses to the footnote. Um, And we, we want to give translations... Um, we want to commend them for not removing these verses from our English Bibles. Okay, for not just saying, uh, we don't think it's Scripture, so it's, you're not going to see it. I mean, any Bible you pick up is going to have verses 9 through 20, e- even if the translators don't think that those verses are original. One reason might be, they probably won't sell any Bibles, or won't sell enough Bibles if those verses are out. Or especially with the woman caught in adultery. That's a great story. People love that story. It's not in your Bible. People are going to question that. They're not going to buy it. Okay. That's, a, that's a, a practical matter, which does influence decisions, though it's not the primary reason. So there are categories of reasons to relegate these verses to the footnotes. First is the manuscript or the external evidence. The argument is that this manuscript evidence is less than ideal. And we have to remember, and I don't have time to get into all of the, uh, the nitty-gritty with this, but 
Um, manuscript evidence is fragmentary. That is to say, if you look at all the New Testament books of the Bible, there isn't... Uh, we're, you hear about, like, we have copies and copies and copies of the New Testament. You've heard that, right? We've got over 5,000 copies of the New Testament. Yes, that's true, but not of all of the New Testament. It's not like every copy of the 5,000 has all the New Testament in it. What it means is we have a couple of verses here, we have a chapter over here, we have you know, six chapters in, in, in this manuscript, you know, a single a clause in one, in one manuscript that we have left over. Okay. And all of these are copies of Greek manuscripts of presumably, all the way back, the original autographs, the ones on which the authors of the New Testament wrote. So, everyone has to look at the physical manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, and of course, of any, of any uh, New Testament writing. And as mentioned in the um, section on the presence of brackets, our two earliest and fullest New Testament Greek manuscripts do not contain these verses. So these are codices, which would be the ancient version of a book, okay, with pages that turn. What, that's, that's, that's new to um, Christianity, for the most part, brought that in to uh, the ancient, um, ancient world, it brought in a codex, because earlier there were you know, writings on stone and, and parchment, and uh, they were bound a different way. Um, but here it's, it's like a book. And so Codex, or the plural Codices, we have Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. And both of these Codices come from the 4th century. So we're talking 300s A.D. Now these manuscripts, then, which are the fullest of New Testament manuscripts... And they are the earliest of Greek manuscripts. These do not have verses 9 through 20. There's a lot of stock put into these codices. So, because these codices don't have verses 9 through 20, we should, based on this external evidence, challenge the authenticity of verses 9 through 20. Again, the operating principle is the oldest is most likely the most reliable. And it is true that both these codices actually have a space, enough space where you would put in verses 9 through 20. So the copyists, the ones who wrote down these codices, knew of verses 9 through 20. And for one reason or another, did not include those verses. It could have been the case that... Um, they actually did include them, but uh, the last page or so fell out. If it's the last page of a, go- of, a, of a text, the last page is the most vulnerable to corruption, so it could have fallen out. Or uh, it could be that the, uh, the copyists are aware of something that's going on, that, that there's this challenge to these verses, and they didn't include them for some, for some reason. So there's manuscript evidence. Not every manuscript that has Mark 16 has verses 9 to 20, and the two most respected do not. There's also linguistic evidence or internal evidence. So this would be um, that if you examine 
the actual writing of these verses, it doesn't seem like it's Mark. It seems like it's a different person writing these. It's not typical of Mark's gospel. And how would you know what's typical of Mark? Well, you'd read Mark 1 through, 15, 1 through 16, verse 8. So this is how every writer has his own mannerisms. Every writer has his own style. Paul does not read like um, you know, John, for instance. Uh, David doesn't write like Moses. Okay? So scholars have isolated verses 9 through 20. They've examined just these verses, and they've looked at the phraseology throughout the text, and they say that the vocabulary that's used and the style of writing that's used in these verses are unique, and they are nowhere to be found elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark. And of course, this, this comes out much more easily in examining the Greek. Okay, you can, And we have wonderful Bible software today that uh, we can just highlight a particular word and say, where, does this, where else does this occur in, in the Gospel of Mark or in the New Testament and in the Septuagint? And, uh, and so, well, that's just a lot of uh, one-time uses of words. So, uh, one instance would be that Mark loves the word immediately. If you read Mark 1, you will see over and over again, he says, immediately. And then immediately he went here. Then immediately he did this. Because Mark is pushing that narrative. He wants to get the reader to the cross. And Jesus is on that mission. But you don't see the word immediately in Mark 16, 9 through 20. Or he likes to use the word again. You don't see these words in Mark's, uh, in verses 9 through 20. Also, so many new words are introduced in these verses and one wonders, well, why wouldn't he use those, those words in you know, the previous writing? In Mark 1, 1 through 16, 8. He's introducing a lot of new vocabulary. This has to be a different author. Okay. By the way, even if it were a different author, does, that does not solve the problem whether this is original or not. Do you think Moses wrote that he was the, the meekest man on earth? He, he could have he written that. Someone would challenge just the, the idea of someone writing that he was the meekest man, if he wrote it of himself. Do you think Moses wrote of his own death? He's, he was a prophet, after all. He's like, this is how it's going to come down. No. So somebody else could have finished the Pentateuch, maybe like Joshua, the successor. Okay. There's sometimes, in some books, multiple authorship. More than one author wrote a particular piece. Think of the Psalms. Okay. So even if we say it's a different author from Mark, that doesn't mean that this isn't original, that this isn't really scripture. It just means that somebody picks up the pen. And of course, there's speculation as to why. What, what, why did Mark not finish it? Some say, well, he died. Others say, well, he did finish it, but it got lost. Somebody else had to write it. And just all kinds of reasons. Another reason to relegate this section to the footnotes is that the theology may contradict other scriptures. So I read these verses. You can look at 16, 9 through 20. What doctrines do you think might be in tension with scripture or might pose a theological challenge? Say, well, it's just probably better if we didn't have that in 
in the, in the Bible. Yeah. Right? So this, the, the, the idea of snake handling, okay? That's just too odd. And people abuse it. And people pay for <laughs> that abuse of, of a practice, okay? Snake handling. That might be in tension with other, um, what we know from Scripture, okay? What else? Practice or theology here. Maybe we'd put the same thing with poison drinking. You can drink poison and get out unscathed. It won't harm you. Speaking in tongues? Okay. Okay, so the continuation of miracles, sign gifts, all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're Protestants for crying out loud. We don't believe that faith plus anything means salvation, right? Here we have clear evidence that Jesus wasn't a Protestant. If you believe and you get baptized, that's, you're adding something. Jesus is adding something. Therefore, this isn't really Jesus because we know from his, from his ministry and we know from Paul that it's, it's just belief. Then, of course, you have to deal with Peter, now baptism saves you, 1 Peter 3, 21. Ouch. Okay. But we, we see why someone would say, this is, not, this is not scripture. Whoever believes and is baptized, though interestingly it says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and is not baptized. But it's another thing. How about the fact that it says that Jesus appears in another form? Now, this is his resurrection body. So he's, he appeared in one form, and now he's like shape-shifting. He's got another form. Some think, well, that's, doesn't, that doesn't sound right. Or maybe that's just the way that our resurrection bodies will be, appearing in different forms. Okay. Yes, Joseph, it could mean exactly that. <laughs> Another reason, and, and this wouldn't be a reason in itself, but it is, I mean, it adds in some sense to why people don't accept it, is that top scholars and theologians don't view this unit as inspired. Obviously, these top scholars hopefully would be basing their, their rejection of these verses on some arguments, but... Uh, as I mentioned, pick up any commentary today, at least one that's been written the last 100 years, 150 years, and most commentaries are not going to accept these as legitimate. Uh, if you know some of your um, text critics, Bruce Metzger, Dan Wallace, uh, Bart Ehrman, who is uh, quite the critic of Christian faith because he, 
he was he claimed to be a Christian, and then he renounced it, and he's been making it his mission to um, question, challenge the legitimacy of New Testament and all these things. John MacArthur had a two, uh, well, this was years ago, he had a, a two sermon, it was a morning and evening service, and I can't recall what, was, what exactly it was, but it was in one of those services, one of those, one of those sermons, he was preaching on why he's not preaching the text of verses 9 through 20. But then he also explained, and you, you could even say preached the text. But he, he did it with, um, like, okay, I'll, pr- I'll preach it, but I don't actually view this as scripture. So, uh, and he, he offered them reasons why. James White, a lot of us love that Reformed Baptist, James White in Arizona. But he, he does not believe these verses to be original. And he is, a, he is a top scholar when it comes to text critic studies. So these four families of evidence, if you will, come together to challenge the authenticity of verses 9 through 20, and therefore the propriety and even the necessity of teaching or preaching the text. So some are going to say, don't preach it. Others are going to say, preach it just in case it is Scripture. You want to, you want to preach the whole counsel of God? It's, it's in here. Preach it to cover your own butt, I guess. Um, or others will say, well, we'll preach it with the caveat that we think it is uh, it's likely not Scripture, um, but it might be. All right, so reasons to retain these verses. Let's look at the external evidence, some of it anyways. Again, I don't want to be overly technical. There's a lot here. Um, remember the two codices, Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, these are the earliest, and according to modern scholarship, the most respected. It is true that these two earliest witnesses do not contain these verses, but this truth needs explanation, needs nuance. There are no Greek manuscripts of Mark 16 prior to the 4th century. So the argument is these codices, you know, 4th century, don't have it. That's true. But it's not like there are a bunch of other manuscripts that don't have it. There's, there's no Greek manuscript of Mark 16. Now, there are Greek manuscripts of other parts of, Mark, of Mark's gospel, going down to the 2nd century, but no Greek manuscripts prior to the 4th century that have Mark 16. These witnesses often oppose one another in their own readings. So if you were to, con- if you were to put Codex uh, Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus together— they're not always in agreement. They're actually often at odds with each other, and taken together, these differ from most of the other manuscript evidence we have. Okay? These would be the oddballs out. These would be the manuscript rabble-rousers, if you will. Okay? They're the ones causing all the problems. And now they might say, well, we're the manuscripts contra mundum, against the world. Right? We're going we're to be the most faithful, and everyone else... Is a liar. Okay. Codex Vaticanus stops at verse 8, but as I mentioned, leaves a blank space sufficient to accommodate the missing verses. And perhaps the copyist knew that a portion was missing um, and uh, couldn't copy it. Okay. On what basis should we trust these witnesses over all of the other witnesses, especially when the church did not use these two codices? And because they differed so significantly from the rest, the early church did not value these two codices as much as modern scholarship does. They actually found these two codices to be mainly corrupt 
and problematic and not our go-to trustworthy witnesses. So there is quite a shift between the first, you know, 18 centuries and the last two. Okay, there are also other Greek New Testament manuscripts that have the Gospel of Mark. They have something of verses 9 through 20. So in the 5th century, just 50 years after these two codices, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, there is Codex Alexandrinus. That's a good manuscript. And that has at least some of Mark 16, 9 through 20. Codex C, Codex D, these are both 5th century Greek manuscripts. They also have these verses. Again, 5th century. It's not too long after the, the two, these two reliable, supposedly really reliable ones. Check out this stat. Some of you love stats. Here's a stat. 1,653 Greek manuscripts include verses 9 through 20, which is to say that 99.8% of the extant Greek manuscripts, those that, it, that we have, okay, almost, nine, almost, almost 100% of the manuscripts that we have actually have some portion of verses 9 through 20. Three manuscripts end at verse 8. And only two of those, the ones I mentioned, are early. What about the other 1,650? Do they not have any kind, any kind of say? So we're, we're talking about the, the external evidence. Well, these 1,650 need also to have a say. There's also early support. So even though, as I mentioned, there are no Greek manuscripts of Mark 16 before the 4th century, this does not mean that there are no witnesses at all. It's not that we just have to wait three centuries before we get anything of Mark 16. There are at least four references in the 100s and two references in the 200s. That's, that's pretty early if we're talking manuscript tr- transmission. Mark probably wrote his gospel before the end of AD 70. It's probably in, um, uh, people argue over this, if it's the first or the last of the gospels, okay. 50s, 60s, somewhere around there, okay? And then you have witnesses, ancient witnesses of Mark's gospel as early as, you know, 50 years later. There are at least six references to Mark's gospel, chapter 16, before Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are even born, okay? I'm going to give you just a, a short list of people or manuscripts that have, that mention Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, at least some portion of it. Remember, manuscript evidence is fragmentary, so it's not like everything has all of these verses. Uh, Papias, uh, disciple of John, 8100, 80, he mentions this section. Justin Martyr, he quotes verse 20, and he was uh, around 8151. Irenaeus, around A.D. 180, quotes and comments on verse 19. Hippolytus, from A.D. 190 to 227, quotes verses 17 and 18. Vincentius, at the Council of Carthage in 256, quotes verses 17 and 18. That's, that's important. If it's at a council and someone says, that's not, that's not scripture, why would you quote that, Hippolytus or Vincentius? What are you doing? Get that out of here. But he uses it as part of... Uh, it's part of the authoritative declarations in the council. 
Okay, that's important. Augustine, we love Augustine, don't we? At least a lot of what he has to say. 354 to 430, he quotes verses 17 and 18. Now, the Gospel of Nicodemus. This is uh, one of those Gnostic or heretical Gospels. But it also has uh, verses 15 through 18. The homily of Aphrates in 337 quotes verses 16 through 18. Ambrose, you guys know about Ambrose? He was very important. He was basically Augustine's mentor, if you will. He was an archbishop, and he quotes verses 15 through 18 and 20. An archbishop using these verses. Chrysostom, golden tongue preacher in AD 40, quotes verses 19 and 20, and then says, this is the end of the gospel. Jerome, he's the one who gave us the Latin Vulgate. He keeps all these verses intact. That's not all, but that's all I'm going to give you. Okay. So, quotations, allusions to these verses abound even before Sinaiticus and Vaticanus come on the scene. It's just that these are not um, Greek manuscripts of, uh, of, uh, of Scripture. Okay? These are Greek or Latin uh, witnesses that testify to this. Versional support, ancient versions of the New Testament. In all non-Greek manuscripts up to the 700s, only three manuscripts that quote Mark 16, not all of them do quote Mark 16, but only three that do, do not have at least some verse from verses 9 through 20. So we're talking Greek manuscripts and non-Greek manuscripts for the first 700 years. Lectionaries, you guys know what a lectionary is? A lectionary. A plan for preaching or a plan for reading the Word of God. And you know, sometimes, like, to get it all in a year or two, to have the congregation hear all the Word of God read. And lectionaries mark out uh, certain readings on certain days. Chapter 16, verses 9 and 20 was to be read on Ascension Day in the early church and at other times. Codex 24, after verse 8, is marked the end. And some have taken this early witness as uh, the copy is saying that this is the end of the gospel, but it actually means that it's the end of the reading on this Lord's Day. So you're going to stop at verse 8 for this Sunday, and then you'll pick up verses 9 through 20, another Lord's Day. So obviously when... There's the celebration of the resurrection or ascension. Uh, there are special, you could say, certain texts are highlighted over others. Mark 16, 9 through 20 was, was included on these uh, ecclesiastical days, these uh, special Lord's Days. You remember, so that's, that's just a smattering of the external evidence. And then you remember another evidence to deny these verses is the linguistic or the internal evidence. Remember, they, they take these verses and see, well, that's not Mark, and that doesn't, that's not what Mark would say. But this is quite arbitrary. It's quite subjective to, to do that. That doesn't sound like Mark. Okay, well, even just, just take um, your own writing. You write different things. You might write a poem, or you might write a, a letter. You might write uh, an essay on something. And you have different styles, don't you? You have different vocab uses. 
So it is already a subjective endeavor to say, that doesn't sound like Mark. But uh, if you take Mark 15, verse 40, through Mark 16, verse 4, so that's 11 verses, the same amount that scholars would isolate for Mark 16, 9 to 20. If you take just that section, and does anyone challenge that section, as far as you know? No. Nobody's challenging Mark 15:40 to 16:4. You take those 11 verses, and those are more unique than the, uh, the section that we are considering. But nobody doubts it. And Mark 16:9-20 actually does contain some of Mark's faves, like the word "early," uses that six times, preaching the gospel or appeared. He uses that hardness of heart. He uses that as well, and I'll be mentioning that in the sermon later. And then you check this out, okay? You check it out. There are six things going on here. Christ appears. There's victory over Satan. Gifts of the Spirit. Gospel preached, kingdom of God. This could be understood as uh, one. And then there's the call to ministry. And you see this in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. That's why I read that beginning. And you see it also, the last chapter in the last section. It's almost like Mark is making another sandwich, it's almost like he's closing it all up. Okay, this is what I mentioned in the beginning, and here it is at the end. It's good stuff. So I would, you, know, you, could, you could read that slowly and then read the last verses of Mark's gospel, and you see them together. It's not atypical of Mark to give us a sandwich, to um, highlight themes. We've seen that over and over again. There's also uh, the historical evidence or ecclesiological evidence. What does ecclesiology mean? Church. Okay. Every period of church history included these verses until, you could say, until now. Uh, until now, as in some are questioning, or a lot of questioning. Didn't matter what century you were in. For the first 19 centuries, people, were, people understood these verses as Scripture. They were teaching them. They were referring to these verses. They were preaching them. They had them in corporate worship. You, know, you don't read the Berenstein Bears in, cor- in corporate worship. Okay, as, as great as that is, you, you don't read it. As great as Lord of the Rings is, you don't pick that up. Okay, now it's time to read from the Lord of the Rings. Here, congregation, the word of Tolkien. No, we don't do that. We read the word of God. And these early church, early churches had the audacity of putting before the congregation these verses as the word of God. I wouldn't say it's audacity. But they believe these verses to be the word of God. Maybe, maybe um, the church in nineteen, or yeah, in nineteen hundred years would—they're they're all wrong. And it's we enlightened folks that have, you know, we've gotten—we we know a thing or two about manuscripts, and we know a thing or two—we know more than a thing or two about manuscripts than they did. The truth is, people knew about manuscripts back then, any century, and. John Calvin. You say, well, John Calvin viewed this as scripture, and he, did, he just didn't know, because a lot of these manuscripts were discovered much later. 
That's why the King James Version does not have uh, brackets, because a lot of the, the discoveries of these uh, supposedly more ancient manuscripts came after 1600s, came in the 1800s or 1700s. Well, if these guys just had those discoveries, certainly they wouldn't believe the things that they did. That's the idea. But the thing is, Calvin and Augustine and others, doesn't matter wherever you are in, in church history, they knew about various readings. And as I alluded to earlier, Eusebius makes some remarks, and then Irenaeus, um, Irenaeus um, I don't remember his name, but anyways, Eusebius, he's the, the primary uh, authority on this. Um, everyone really bases their view on what Eusebius said. He, he makes mention that these verses just are not in all of the manuscripts, and there's some question about why they're there. But the church in both the East and in the West include these verses. So it's not like it's um, just a, a Protestant thing to include it. It's, it's even, it's, it's, it's West, okay? So it's Rome and uh, Protestants, Lutherans, Reformed. In the East, Eastern Orthodox, they, they accepted these as well. Was the church wrong to preach these verses for all these centuries? There's also theological evidence. The, uh, I mentioned that um, in, uh, there are some things that might cause someone to doubt these verses, the theology. The theology in verses 9 through 20 is not undermined by the rest of the New Testament. Who influenced the writing of the Gospel of Mark? Does anybody remember? I mentioned, I've only mentioned this a couple times throughout the sermon series. Was Mark one of the twelve apostles? No, he was not. Remember, I even uh, argued that he was probably that, that guy who fled naked. He was a pretty young guy. Okay. He shows up in the early church uh, in, in the book of Acts, John Mark. He, didn't, he, he, wasn't, he was not an apostle. Okay. Same thing with Luke. He was not an apostle. He gives us the gospel of Luke. Who influenced Mark? It was Peter. Yes. So, some say, well, why didn't Peter write a gospel? And there are the Gnostic gospels. There's a gospel of Peter. So some say, well, he did. But it, it does not sound like Peter at all. Um, he, he did write a gospel through his spiritual son, Mark. And the whole baptism and belief are often tied. As I mentioned, First uh, Peter 3.21, Peter says, now baptism saves you. Nobody questions the legitimacy of that verse, Though, of course, that verse certainly confuses many people. How can it be that baptism now saves you? The Reformers used this verse, 1616, as a proof text for baptism. Our own confession in chapter 7 and in chapter 9, so on the covenant and on baptism, both cite Mark 16, 15 and 16. 
So our own confession includes these as proof texts, if you will, as textual support for what it is that they summarize as far as the covenant is concerned and baptism is concerned. They had no problem talking about the necessity of baptism. They had no problem with it. Rightly understood, of course. And Joseph somewhat stole the thunder already with the snake handling and Paul and Malta. I'll mention that in the sermon as well. Um, But we have one instance of that, at least. And drinking poison. Nothing in the book of Acts about that. But hold on to that um, for the sermon. Theologically, uh, we, we have this idea called the preservation of the text. So, the Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 8, says this. It's a lengthy chapter, or a lengthy section. Um, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. I won't read the rest of it, but the key here is that the word of God in Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament, when it was being written, it was inspired by God and it was superintended by God. God preserves his word. God doesn't care just to give his word to a generation and say, here you go, and then let subsequent generations fend for themselves. He, his word, if it's not going to return unto him void, it has to be kept pure, and his word has to be kept pure in all the ages that he is uh, king over until he returns. So, the fact that we've had these verses for so many centuries, is that not evidence that God is preserving his word? I would say it is. Is the Bible established? Is it settled? Or is it in flux? Now, there are two, two or three different approaches to the manuscripts and to, to the Bible as a whole. And um, one view is called the eclectic approach. So this, this is the James White approach and, and, and others. Uh, this approach understands all of these different manuscripts from, you know, east and the west, just scattered, and it's our job or really it's a scholar's job. It's the ones who, who know manuscripts well. It's their job to take all these together and then to determine which is the best reading in any given instance. Whereas the, the other approach or two, sometimes one's called the Texas Receptus TR, or a majority perspective, majority text, is to see that the Bible was given to the church not to a bunch of academics. Uh, it was given to the church, and the Lord preserved that word to the church, for the church, the moment that it was written, and it was passed on 
from one church to another. That's why Paul would say, um, I've written this letter, now you, have, now you make a copy and you send it over to the Laodiceans and, and then they'll send their letter that I wrote them to you and you guys will have the word. Um, the early church kept the word of God, kept it pure and wrote it down faithfully. Yes, there are scribal errors in every generation, but they wrote it down and ca- carried it forth faithfully that we actually have God's word. Are we constantly on this search to find the, the, the right reading? Or has the word of God already been given to us and we just need to teach it and preach it and accept it? Um, I would say that it is settled and it is not in flux because, the God, because God does preserve his word in every generation. He keeps it pure. There are some resources and I think I've ranked them as, uh, maybe, I, maybe I didn't. Um, on the bottom of page three, I think you can get that first resource uh, from the Trinitarian Bible Society. I think you can find that online for freezies. Show the last 12 verses of Mark 16 be in your Bible. Jeff Riddle, uh, he's a TR guy, Texas Receptus guy. He wrote a, a good uh, piece, The Ending of Mark as a Canonical Crisis. Some of you are familiar with Matt Everhard, PCA pastor in uh, Pittsburgh or Valencia, and he did uh, a video, I think it's 20-something minutes, Gospel of Mark, longer, shorter ending. Is that section authentic? He argues that it is. Joel Ellis, guy in Arizona, wrote, or not wrote, he did two um, videos on the Gospel of Mark, just on the he did three videos on the Gospel of Mark 16, 9 through 20. The third one was on the content, and the first two were on proving the case, which I try to do in like 45, 50 minutes. Okay, he has two hours. And even that is, is not, um, just a lot involved. If you have knowledge of Greek, and you can read a 19th century guy, um, Dean John William Bergen wrote the last 12 verses of Mark, vindicated against recent critical objectors and established the fatal blow to manuscripts B and Olive, Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. It's very technical. But he's writing at the same time that this Griesbach theory is coming out. See, he's a contemporary of these guys in the early 19th century who are now challenging these verses, and he's like, what do we do? Why? Okay, I, I, I didn't think I had to write this, but in, it's, it's a big book. And if you, if you know your Greek... And if you don't, you still get some out of it. He also writes like somebody who's from the 19th century. Because he was. <laughs> it's just harder for some of us to, to read. We have to read, them, read the passages slowly. Okay. A lot more could be said, obviously. but And, and you might not be convinced by what I said. And that's okay. I'm going to preach these verses anyways. In, you know, about a half hour. Give or take. And I hope you will receive it as the word of God. <laughs> well, we have about two minutes. Does anyone have a question? Ideally about, you know, what we just talked about. All right. Thanks for, thanks for bearing patiently with me on this because it was a little heady. You can always listen to this lesson again on Sermon Audio. David?
The woman at the well in John 4, or the woman caught in adultery of John 7? Yes, I will, but not until... Now, if I can time my death just right, <laughs> the Gospel of John will be the last book I ever preach in about 30 years. So, yes, when I get to it in about 30 years, I will preach through it. I want, my plan is to have a Gospel every 10 years. Um, start at one every, every 10 years. So, Gospel of John, my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, I, I feel like I want to end with that. So... Just know from now, right now, I'm going to preach it. Better be here. <laughs> Put it in your calendar. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> Give or take a month or a year. Okay. Let's pray. Our wonderful God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving your word. And... We thank you, just the gift of your word. We thank you that you change lives uh, by means of your word with the power of the Spirit. And um, do you pray, Lord, that this lesson, albeit heady, um, is not, without, is not, is not um, without reach, and we can be benefited from it, at least to some degree, Lord. I pray that we can even have confidence now that this is your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.